Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Past nine o'clock, you're listening to Three Triple R. This show is Radio Marinara, the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Dr. Beach, and I'm Kate Mills. Kate, Dr. Beach, it's been a while since we got to hang out. It is. <laughs> it has been a while. Yeah, yes. a, a long time since we've been in the studio together. Uh, yes, and, very uh, lovely to see you when we're joined by Nerida behind the panel. Yep, all smiles in here, and I got a message from Bron yesterday. She copped a bit of this weather. Um, I think it was Friday that sort of hit our way. Um, she's up on the sort of New South Wales south coast. But I believe she's listening, so shout out to Bron. Shout out to Bron. Bo- bo- boys have taken over the studio again. Uh-oh. Like last week, yes. Um, and before we go any further, um, huge thanks to Justine for filling in for, for Tim Thorpe on Vital Bits, as she'll be doing for the next couple of weeks while Tim's having a rest. Yeah, well, that took our whole family by surprise that Tim's voice wasn't on the radio on Saturday morning. <laughs> it is a little completely. Bit, I was like, what is happening? Where are we? Yeah. Uh, Didn't he tell people he was having a break? He did, but you just don't expect it to <laughs> hear. It's just he it. says it, but you yeah. don't expect it to happen. Yes, you forget about those things. Good morning, Tim. Yes. Yeah, good morning. And Tim. he'll be back on Christmas Day. It's one of my favourite yes. bits of broadcasting, that six to nine. That's fantastic with Tim on Christmas Day. <laughs> Something to look forward to. There's your Christmas present. Count down your days on your advent calendar till Christmas uh, till Tim's on the radio bringing you Christmas. That's right. And this is our um this is our second last show for the year. Um my last show for the year. And uh, but next week we'll have um Bron will be back in the studio and we'll have Cabin Boy. Um I believe Neil Black's coming in. But that's next week. Let's let's get on to what we're doing this week. We're joined um as usual, we've got a um, a fun-filled show. And we, we do, and we've got lots of people in the studio, which is great. Uh, yeah, no one on the blower this morning. Yep. It's, um, it's all live in the studio, live human beings. 
We have um, we're kicking off with Helen Privet, who is the director of exhibitions, our manager of exhibitions at Museum Victoria at the top of Gertrude Street, um, and she is going to talk to us about yet another exhibition on the Titanic. <laughs> I, I hate to say, but, but Helen's going to tell us why we should still care about the Titanic and what's very exciting about this exhibition, which is going to kick off in a week or two. Yeah, and it looks like they're sort of recreating a few parts of the Titanic, so it's going to be very Instagrammable, which is what you know everyone wants these days. What's Instagram? Um, <laughs> it's a way people tell each other how good their lives are. Oh, right, it's a way of communicating. <laughs> Um, yes, I, yeah, I do. Narrative believe, I, sighing, outwardly I, sighing. I do believe they're going to have a fully fledged um, staircase in there or something. Anyway, 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 I can see Helen smiling at us from the green room. Um, she's, <laughs> she's going to be telling us about that in about five minutes' time. So um, then we're followed by a, a, a friend from Castlemaine, a dear friend of Radio Marinara, who um, lives in Castlemaine. But John's um, come down the calder this morning to talk to us. John Lewis from Biofouling Services. Um, Knows everything about invasive species, um, marine botanist. We love marine botanists on this show, but he's now he's, he's spread his wings and he covers everything in the in the marine environment that might want to stick on a hull or invade a port, and, uh, and then just some of that theory around what exactly is an invasive <clears throat> species, where do they come from, well, how do they get here, he's, what's he's, happened. He's going to talk to us about Lesepsian. I think I've got the word right, Lesepsian migrations. Oh, thanks for springing that on me. I don't even know what that word means. Well, there's a clue. Lesseps, apparently, um, and John's going to correct me if I'm wrong. I can even say raising the eyebrows or rolling the eyes. <laughs> from the room now. Um, he was the dude that um, built the Suez Canal or designed the Suez Canal. So it's all about species moving through the ah. Suez to the Mediterranean, maybe the other way. And what, how that speaks to um, the invasion of marine species all over the planet, including our very fair Port Phillip Bay. Fascinating. We've only got 10, 12 minutes to talk to him about that. Yeah, we'll stretch that out and it'll probably crunch your final segment into, into three minutes. <laughs> Which is absolutely fine. There was an article in the Age yesterday I saw sort of encouraging people to get out and explore the Great Southern Reef. And it was just nice to see that term being used in reference to the reef that extends, you know, all the way from sort of Kalbarri to northern New South Wales, southern Queensland. Um, it doesn't, it's not as sexy as the Great Barrier Reef yet. But there was an article sort of suggesting people get out there and explore it because it's pretty easy to do. It's at our doorstep and they just spoke to a few sort of people within the industry. So I'm going to run people through and I'm talking people that have never put their head underwater or have been very timid or scared how to basically put your head in the water for the first time and go snorkeling. So we're not going to get too technical. We're not going to get too difficult. Nerida's looking at me like nodding her head going, that's her. So if I can convince Nerida by the end of that segment to go snorkeling, then hopefully I've done it for many listeners at home. And if you are an experienced snorkeler and you've got a good tip or you've got something out there that's really helped you, we've got the Triple R text line, which is 0466981027. So if you want to join in the conversation and share your tips with the listeners out there that may not be as as experienced, that would be awesome. And, yeah, hopefully we'll have at least two to three minutes to go through that at the end of the show. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll have more than that. And I, I was going to pick you up on one thing. You said, like, the Great Southern Reef is not as sexy as the Northern Reef. I, I would, uh, not I would, personally. I would argue against that. Like, you know, it's... Yes. Uh, no, I think it's a lot sexier. I prefer cooler climbs. Yes, me too. Much, much sexier than the heat. Oh, and I find the challenge sexier. Like the Great Barrier Reef, anyone can go in there, jump in. They don't even have to, you know, they don't even have to wear bathers, but they can just jump in in their board shorts and away they go. Whereas here, we've got to, you know, put that sexy rubber on, put all. That <laughs> Jesus, stuff. Hey, let's, hang on, let, let's talk about something. Else. <laughs> <laughs> and 
it's a bit harder to do. So the challenge makes it the reward is much yeah. much nicer when you go through that challenge. Yes. Yeah. Should we um, perhaps move on? Yeah. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's go through the weather for yes. today. Um, it is uh, current weather. We've got nine k wind. Um, it's going to be what's it say? Twenty one degrees today. Uh, maybe a little bit more of a sprinkle. There's a bit of water on the ground out there. If you haven't got out of bed yet and checked it out, but not too much last night. Today we have medium chance of showers. Uh, chance for thunderstorm in the morning or afternoon. Winds subtly 15 to 20 k, tending southwesterly 20 to 25 k in the middle of the day. Um, and it's going to tomorrow possible three mils of rain, 23 degrees. Uh, warming up Tuesday, 29 degrees, no rain. Wednesday, quite warm, 34 degrees, uh, up to seven mils of rain. So it's going to be uh, a little bit muggy, I reckon. Yeah, that's Nerda. perfect. Thursday, back down 27 and then cooling down again Friday to 21. Um, tiny bit of rain there. Um, and if you're heading out on the water, you'll be wanting to know what's happening with the tides. And it's going to be, I believe, at Point Lonsdale, it's going to be a high tide of 1.27 metres at 9.28am. So in about 20 minutes' time. Just had a text come in from um, from Bron. Good morning, Bron. Uh, and this is uh, from Cliff, Cliff uh, Davis. got the weather report. Our Antarctic correspondent. Yep. Uh, Cliff says, good morning, beautiful day here. Um, that's This is a Davis station. Blue skies. Very little wind and more wildlife turning up. Three elephant seals are down on the beach to start their molt. Oh, oh nice. That that painting painting a picture with words. Thank <laughs> yeah, you, Cliff. Thanks, That's beautiful. Cliff. We always love to hear from you. And look, if you've got the board strapped onto the roof and you're heading down for a surf, there's a little bit of an onshore wind today. It's sort of southeast over on the eastern side and sort of southerly around that surf coast side. But there is a bit of swell around that sort of three to four foot. I would say maybe lower expectations, but um, the swell is there. So any of the spots that you sort of feel like going to, it might be a little bit crumbly, a little bit wobbly, but there's going to be a wave. So get out, get amongst it while you can. And, um, yeah, enjoy. What if Dr. Surf's getting out today? No, I don't think – today wouldn't be one of those days for Dr. Surf. He's become a bit picky by the right. sounds of it. So yeah, he would have okay. – he, he waits till it's during the week when everyone's at work. <laughs> would be, that's, that's what I tend to do. So I imagine it's much the same. Yeah. Uh, we're going to um, pay a couple of bills and then listen to a track. And then when we come back, we're going to um, be talking to Helen Privet about the, the new Titanic Artifacts exhibition. Um, the show is Radio Marinara. You're on 3 R. It's 10 minutes past nine. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We're joined in the studio this morning by Helen Privet, who is manager of um, exhibitions at Museum Victoria, and she's here to talk about an exhibition on the Titanic. Good morning, Helen. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's um, our complete pleasure. Thanks for coming down the road and um, coming to East Brunswick and joining us, getting out of bed this morning. <laughs> I was going to have to in and go, my son's playing cricket this morning, so it's... Uh much preferable to be here in the studio. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is it bat- batting, bowling, or all rounder? Um, he's a bowler. Right, mm. He's a bowler. Okay. Mm. Um, 
Nothing wrong with that. Had to go as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exhibition, uh, Titanic exhibition, when does it kick off? What's it about? Why do we care about another? Why, why should we still care about the Titanic is my first question, actually. <laughs> no problems. Um, well, your very first question, we open on Monday the 18th of December, so mm-hmm. we're very excited. We're building literally as we speak, so um, there's all sorts of things happening down in the touring hall at Melbourne Museum today. Uh, before you get to Beach, a second question. Yeah. I was just curious, as they're building it, do you just kind of walk around and try and picture the space, see what is there like a bit of a buzz around the staff Absolutely. as that's happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've we've often got people wanting to get in while we're building, you know, the rest of the staff just to have a quick peek while it's happening. Um, and we definitely have to keep people away um, for, for site safety. So that's that's our most important thing while we're building. But um, yeah, it's it's a real buzz. And every time I go into the space, something new will have happened and and um you know risen up so it's it's really exciting to see it in progress all right very quick question how Mm. long does it usually take to do a build look it really depends this one's taking us about 14 days um because it's a touring show that comes in sort of ready to make um if we're building something ourselves it can take as long as three months for a temporary show um and for something more permanent it can take sort of 12 months up to 12 months yeah Two-week bump in, that's pretty quick. It's pretty quick, yeah. Why should we still care about the Titanic? I think that it's it's a really eternal story. Um, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating story because I guess at the time the ship was touted as being virtually unsinkable, yeah. so there was this yeah. sort of bravado about the ship itself. Um, but I think from my perspective and reading through the information that we've got about the exhibition and, and what's going to be presented in it, it's really a story about people. Um, and survival and resilience and sacrifice and all of the sorts of things that are just gripping tales for, for humans. Um, and and there are sort of lasting legacies for the, um, the Titanic as well, you know, which I think... I don't know. There's obviously a lot of people lost their lives, but the the knock-on effect in terms of maritime safety and so yeah. forth has been yeah. monumental. Um, and and the changes that were made in the 1910s, post the Titanic tragedy, really have lasting impacts today. So is that actually part of the exhibition? So that exploration of the Titanic after it's sunk? There is there is a little bit about that. Um, obviously, it's a really big story to tell, and we've only got a thousand square meters to tell it in. Um, but there is there is reference to the the kind of maritime safety changes that were made, um, and also to the sort of rediscovery of the wreck and and the um, recovery efforts to bring objects up from the wreck as well. Um- the personal stories, I, I agree entirely, and I was you know, being a bit sort of facetious. <laughs> That's right. The no, 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 devil's no, no, advocate, a, but it is fascinating, isn't it? it? Is. That, 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 and this is why we love history and you know family history. People get into that, the stories from yeah. you know from the past, absolutely. Um, and with the Titanic, I'd, I'd imagine there are several that you're showcasing in this exhibition. Several characters in particular yeah that's right and and i think from different sort of class levels as well you yeah. know if you will um definitely that's how it was structured in the ship yeah. um i think one of my favorite stories is that of evelyn marsden who was one of the australians on board there were kind of a handful of australians um and she worked on board the ship as a stewardess and a, a nurse and um she 
she she was rescued. She was um, on lifeboat number 16. Uh, she grew up in South Australia um, on a farm and learned how to row on, on the river near her farm. Um, and she took control of lifeboat 16 and steered it to safety until it was rescued by the Carpathia. So, um, you know, she, she took that responsibility and, and rescued people effectively. So I think she's she's a magnificent character. Evelyn Marsden. Evelyn Marsden. For what, yeah, well, I, you know, I've not heard of her. But no, that's, that's no. But one reason to go to that exhibition. Absolutely. I want to go and read more about I her. I know, no, I know. Not, not the one, one of many. One of, well, <laughs> yes. one, of, one of many. Yes. Yeah, 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 one of many reasons. And so what are people going to be greeted by when they walk into this exhibition? Because I've seen it done where people get handed tickets and they you know, their first class and or cattle class, whatever. Like, yeah. What's sort of going to happen when people walk in? Yeah, you will get a boarding pass. Uh, okay. So you will get to, you know, sort of a, a, a take on one of the characters of, of one of the, the So people. you will actually get a name of someone who is, oh, yeah. that's a bit of a Russian roulette sort of situation uh, too, isn't it? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then we we take you through the, the sort of history of the build and construction of the, the ship because that's, I mean, it's incredibly fascinating. Um, and then uh, and then there are recreations from on shipboard. So we've got uh, the, the sort of first-class um, passenger cafe um, recreated. We've got um, uh, the grand staircase, so where the, the cherub um, is on the, the staircase balustrade um, and, uh, and a number of other sort of recreations to give people a really great sense of what it was like to be on ship. Um, and each of these areas are, are sort of, um, they also have objects that would have been in the passengers' um, belongings and, and on ship in those areas. Um, and then uh, we come to the section which is about the, the tragedy itself um, hitting the iceberg where we have a giant ice wall um, that's part of the exhibition um, and then the final gallery is really about that recovery and legacy um, kind of piece that we were talking about. It's a travelling exhibition. It's coming from somewhere else presumably before this and heading off elsewhere. Um, what, where, where do all these objects come from? Is, is there a repository for that? Is there a Titanic museum in Southampton or something that you're, you're borrowing these things from? Yeah, so there are there are a number of Titanic exhibitions. Oh, Titanic, yeah, museums. I think there's there's something in Belfast, um, and I think there's one in Cherbourg as well in France, which was one of the stops of Titanic before it headed into the Atlantic. Um, but this collection belongs to an organisation called RMS Titanic, who are the only organisation um, who are able to recover from the wreck site. Uh, so there's about 5,000 objects that they have in their collection, and we've got about 200 of them coming to us. And because the wreck has only been sort of relatively recently found, these are sort of, you know, we're still discovering that the beauty of these or the, the fascination with them, aren't we? Absolutely. So I think the, the wreck site was rediscovered in 1985 and the first recovery mission went um, went down in about 1987. Yeah. Um, there's been about eight since then. So, yeah, they just um, they keep bringing things up from the, the bottom of the ocean. And, I mean, for me, my background is in... Um, materials conservation um i've been at the museum for a long time doing various things um but uh for me there's a fascination as well in what has survived Mm -hmm. you know being that far deep in the ocean um with those many you know that many biological creatures and things like that 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 could have destroyed some of these materials but you know there's there's paper artifacts that have come up from the bottom you know it's just 
And, it, and again, it was what, what depth did it sink to? About four kilometres. So oh, yes. it's immensely deep. In the icy Atlantic. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, people that are thinking about heading along to the exhibition, you said it starts in a couple of weeks or so? Yeah, Monday the 18th of December. Should they book tickets or can you just rock up? You could try rocking up, but tickets are selling really fast. So I would I would pre-book. I know that's something that we've kind of lost lost doing as much as we used to pre-COVID. But um, yeah, I would recommend booking because they are starting to sell really fast. Um, and we're open till the 14th of April next year. So. Oh, wow. oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. And till late in the evening, you can go on a Friday night till nine or ten or something. Or mm, there are there are a number of evening um, openings, so we're not doing it regularly. But um, yeah, certainly there are a number of events that are kind of a bit more adult focused, um, so that you can go along and see the exhibition in the evening. I have one more question. What's what's a good common myth about the Titanic? What's it that you'd like to bust? Oh, <laughs> is there something? Is there a myth? I I read something recently that the that or this myth about the the fourth is not. It's not. It wasn't inactive. The fourth. Um, the, fourth the fourth. The funnel. Funnel. That's yeah. it. That's the word. Yeah. yeah. Um. I think that's actually true. Oh, the, it is true. Yeah, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. That's all right. No, that's all right. That's all right. Um, no, there were there were three sort of functional funnels, and then the fourth one was um, was largely decorative, for want of a better term. Mm. It, it did serve some purposes, but it didn't serve the same purpose as the but other three. But it did serve a purpose. It wasn't purely decorative. No, right. no. That's that's. And it's not like it, it was yeah. because it was inactive and not working. That's why they hit the iceberg yeah like but that. no it wasn't anything like that but there was always <laughs> that there was always the myth that it was well the myth that it was purely decorative i yeah. think yeah. and it's not actually purely decorative no i don't believe so yeah. and i'm sure you'll get calls from people who know more than me <laughs> about this particular fact <laughs> it's lining up right <laughs> uh helen privet thank you very much for coming and joining us on radio marinara this morning and thank all you. the best um to you and your colleagues at museums victoria for this um exhibition that we all look forward to wonderful we'll look forward to seeing you there thank you, thank you. Yep. thanks estamos escuchando radio marinara en tres triple r uh, indeed, it's uh, Radio Marinara on uh, 3 Triple R. It's 9.31. John Lewis, uh, Biophallic Services, uh, Australia or International Universe? Um, you Castlemaine. You can... Castlemaine. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of marine biophallic. Yeah, a lot of shipping. A lot, yeah. of sh- a lot of shipping going through Castlemaine. <laughs> uh, John's been on this show before. We love John. Um, John is, um, yeah, it, but what do you have a huge repository of knowledge about invasive species and things that stick to hulls and all sorts of stuff? Aren't yeah, you? it's a pity about all those wasted neurons, isn't it? Keeps me busy. Yeah, it does keep you busy. Um, I hear they've been busy in New Zealand. There was a, a P&O cruise ship that got oh, bounced from, um, that, that, abs- was it absolutely. Auckland Harbour because of a couple of well, invasive species, potentially the, invasive um, species? The Pacific Adventure, which was apparently doing a special cruise called the Kiwi Adventure. Well, they didn't get to see any Kiwis because the New Zealand um, biosecurity people said, You've got, they'd had a photo, you've got three mussels and a um, a bryozoan in one of your intakes and you have to clean that off. So the ship heads across to New Zealand and they were going to, had the divers on board and they were going to clean it in the Bay of Plenty. But when you say three mussels and a bryozoan, these are three mussels, these are species that aren't found in New Zealand, obviously. Not absolutely sure of that because we have had one of the highest 
supposed risk species to Australia is the, the New Zealand green shell mussel. And we have had vessels in Australia, we actually found one recently with green shell mussels on it, and it was going back to the New Zealand. I said, no, you can't bring those back because they may have picked up some pathogens overseas. Ah. So you might bring in a new pathogen, which then wipes out our green shell mussels. So, um, yeah. the, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt I, you. Yeah, I no, that, just that's right. I, ideally, yeah. I think they'd like to stop all shipping. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, then risk is zero, <laughs> but they're not far off that. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. What happened to the, the ship oh, the, the ship, though, the, the weather in the Bay of Plenty was too rough. Um, essentially, you can't do any cleaning in Australia or New Zealand in harbour. You've got to do it in deep water. And so the, we've had ships go from Port Phillip Bay across the Bay of Plenty, get cleaned, come back, and then do their work. Um, but it was too rough, so they couldn't do it. And so they said, you can't continue your voyage. And so P&O said, well, we'll go to Hobart instead. And there were some very, very unhappy cruise, cruisers, including a couple who were going to get married in Hobbitville. Oh. <laughs> and they, they had all their guests on board. And, uh, yeah. So... Uh, and there was initially, oh, we're going to give you a, a, a voucher for a future P&O cruise. And, <laughs> and there was a bit of a revolt saying, we're never travelling on a P&O ship again. <laughs> so um, they did increase the offer, which made more people happy. But this is just, we, we went through last summer in a similar situation. There was a sh- one ship that had to be cleared, cleaned off um, Adelaide. Um, I was involved with uh, Kate Pritchard at Southern Divers where we were trying to do a little bit of cleaning of some of these ships at Station Pier, but then uh, that turned into a political shit st- uh, um, political storm. <laughs> Pardon me. And um, the port eventually said no cleaning at Station Pier. So, you know, it's an issue that these ships come to Australia. They're based in Sydney. They come in clean at the start of the cruise season, but the, the fouling in Sydney is so severe that, a ship spending a couple of weeks or even a few days will get enough growth that will stop it going to New Zealand. So th- these are cr- cruise ships you're talking about, based, ba- based in Sydney, start off with a clean hull, pick up stuff in Sydney. Many people do when they go to Sydney, bring it off. <laughs> Same thing happened to me recently. No, <laughs> get a check-up before you go home. Yeah. <laughs> um, Talk to the doctors after this. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so they can be, even if it's a say cosmopolitan species that one might find in New Zealand, for example. Exactly. Um, find Nothing. it also in, in um, Sydney Harbour. Yep. You might find in Port Phillip Bay. Um, still not allowed to go into. Still not allowed. They're, they're because re- of pathogens that might be well piggybacking. The requirements they set up is that they have two standards: a short stay vessel and a long stay vessel. Now, a long stay vessel which is more than 28 days, can only have biological slime and goose bar- or goose barnacles, nothing else. It can't have a single barnacle on it. And some of the cruise ships are classified as long-stay if they want to go into the Milford Sounds or any yep. of the sensitive areas. So they have to meet that higher standard. If you're a short-stay vessel, like a container ship or something like that, they have a standard which says you can have a band of green weed around the waterline and you can have up to 5% of a barnacle 
or a one type and 1% of another type in your niche areas, which are sea chests and grates and propellers and things like that. Um, but that is incredibly hard. I mean, I was involved with one ship last summer that went from, was cleaned, it was a Navy ship, got cleaned in Western Australia, back to Sydney, and we had to re-inspect um, after four weeks. It couldn't have gone to New Zealand. Because at that stage, these cosmopolitan things, um, things that have been in Australia and New Zealand for almost 200 years since ships first coming, it had a barnacle, it had a bryozoan, it had a hydroid and it had a tube worm. And you say you use the, the, the A, the definite article, they, no, or indefinite, well, I forget yeah. what it is, but yeah, A, one, just species one, one individual. Oh, no, there were a few more individuals. Oh, a few more individuals, yeah. right. If you stand in the water in summer in Sydney Harbour for more than a couple of hours, your legs will be covered in tube worms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. is one of the intensest yeah. fouling areas in the world. Are you serious? Yes. No, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned... Uh, uh, no, no barnacles, but gooseneck barnacles are okay. Is that they're because they okay are truly cosmopolitan? Because they're cosmopolitan and they're oceanic species. So they're not going to settle inshore in your harbour or anything like that. They, these are the things you find on the... Uh, if a boy or something washes ashore on a beach and you find these big um, leathery things with a white shell at the end. Yeah. Um, they're called goose barnacles. <laughs> we could go, go on forever on that because <laughs> people thought they were the alternate life stage of the geese from Scotland <laughs> that used to migrate. Oh, yeah. And because of the... the, 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 the I, I get the, that. Yeah, that's, that's right. But because of the feed, way the barnacles feed, they've got this feathery sort of what they call siri, and they thought they were feathers. Yeah. So, oh. Um, oh. yeah. It's oh. <laughs> my so, bit of information for the day. So, yeah. Excuse my ignorance, but these ships, like, talking about that Navy vessel, yeah. it's moving the whole time. It's going from WA over to Sydney, You isn't don't know it? our Navy. <laughs> oh, oh, because I'm just thinking if something's moving the whole time, then it wouldn't pick up stuff? Yeah, yeah, no. Right. Ideally, if you're moving the whole time, that, that's the best strategy. And a lot of the coatings that um, ships, modern ships have depend on movement to keep that coating. A Navy ship, they spend a lot of time sitting alongside, so a lot of those coatings don't work so well. Um, but ships like, I mean, the Spirit of Tasmania, the two vessels there, they're coating is one of these slippery ones that doesn't have a biocide, but because they move the whole time, they stay nice and clean. Yeah. But there is also internal spaces where like internal spaces, sorry, where yeah, the, you get the well, fouling. The, ballast yeah, tanks. This is, yeah. Well, it, it's what they call a sea chest. So where water goes in, instead of having multiple pipes poking out through the, the hull, they have one big chest where all the pipes are on the inside that. And they're designed to be as big as possible to accommodate as much growth as possible without clogging the pipes. So they're, they're designed to have lots of growth in them. So you can get fish grow in there. I've, I've crabs happily live in there. Hang on, so let's go. So it's designed to <laughs> have as much crab growth that as came possible. Out of there? <laughs> so if there is going to be growth, it's going to be in there, and Absolutely. then they like just disinfect that at the end, or dump it out way out in the ocean, or well, it's it's a huge issue now that most of the time they will only get cleaned out in dry dock. So every vessel has to dry dock every three years or five years, and. Some of the treatments, I, I looked at one vessel which had this supposed drip treatment system 
that was going to stop all the growth. And so we opened the chi chi chest, which is like opening a door, and there's the dripper at one end, and there's the intake at the other, and it was solid muscles. (laughs) 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 This was one of the vessels that just went between um, Melbourne and Tassie, and it always, always burst with one side to the wharf, so water all came in the other side. The inside was clean, the outside, it was just muscle heaven, and and this dripper was obviously feeding them. (laughs) So... Uh, yeah, the technology is uh, far behind. I mean, my view is that 20 years ago when this issue, issue came up, they should have redesigned sea chests um, you know, and make it, them a cone so there's no, it's not a big box where there's lots of dead corners and things. So the, the problem is you can get muscles in there, the paints don't work as well because there isn't the flow and then you get things growing in amongst the muscles. So it's a, it's a little heaven for some things. God, the things we learn on Radio Marinara. Yeah. yeah. And we're not even up to Lecepsian. I know. I was, I was about to say. About to say you've got 10 seconds left on it. No, we've got a bit more, we've got more yeah, we've got than that. Time. Um, Lecepsian migration, Suez Canal. You were going to give a talk over in Turkey. Various things got in the way of that. Um, yeah. a, a keystone address, I gather. Um, <laughs> and um, you've t- told me a little bit about it, yeah. but I, I'm, now, t- tell th- the world. This, this actually relates quite well to the whole issue of introduced species, invasive species, and chip biofouling species. So the Lecepsian migration is one of the the biggest invasions of marine species, which was from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean when they opened the Suez Canal. Now, Ferdinand de Lesseps was actually the engineer who was involved in designing the canal. So what actually happened when they opened the canal, all of a sudden you've connected two oceans. Um, What happened, there is now more than 150 fish, mollusks, crustaceans that occur in the Mediterranean that came from the Red Sea. How many do you think from the Mediterranean went to the, to the Red Sea, the other direction? Zero? Uh, let's, Not, go, let's go 20. Okay, seven. Okay. <laughs> okay. You were closer. <laughs> and the reason for this is... Like, okay, the reason content, for this whatever, is all to do with... High biodiversity and low biodiversity. So when you get into the eastern Mediterranean, the Mediterranean at the western end is reasonably diverse, but you drop right off as you get up towards the Middle Eastern area. The Red Sea and the Indo-Pacific area is the most biodiverse area in the world. So this is the hotspot for things. So natural ecology is that things move from high biodiversity to low biodiversity. So when you open that canal, all of a sudden... Evolution or you know biogeography takes its part and Bio- yeah happen. biology wants biology to happen wants you go, to happen. Hey guys yeah. let's go yeah and so you had all these things moving in that direction we have a similar thing across the Pacific in that things move from west to east and one of the other things we have through the Panama Canal currently one of the biggest concerns in the Caribbean is what's called the cup coral which in the Indo-Pacific, it is this pretty little coral which is generally under ledges and things like that. In the Caribbean, there's no competitor. So it has taken over all the oil rigs and sunken ships and everything. It hasn't really invaded reefs unless there's disturbance. So um, what happens with ships is that ships essentially are low biodiversity. There's nothing on them. Yeah. So 
things that can live move onto those ships. When you come into a port... Ports are generally pretty depauperate as well, aren't they? Exactly right. And they're disturbed. So the native species aren't happy in a port. I mean, you build a pier, that's an unnatural environment. It's actually the same applies to Flinders Pier, for instance. We loved it as marine botanists because you had all these deep water algae. Yeah. You know, before you built a pier, there's just a basically a, a, a um, sloping seagrass bed. Um, so down there, it's great around Portsea. That's the, the unnatural, actually, environments, but wonderful. But up in the port where there's disturbance, it's just all these um, opportunistic weeds come in. And yeah. that's what they really are, weeds. So, so, so Undaria, for example, Undaria, we talked about that. Um, Sabella, the uh, Mediterranean fan room. Initially it came in and piles were actually covered in it. But you look at it now, and we're doing a survey down at Corio recently, and the piles are now all covered with the native um, sea squirt, and you'll get occasional Sabella. Yeah. So if the ecosystem's healthy, the... In these introduced species can't get a foothold and most of them end up just becoming part of an ecosystem. But the trouble is when they do get a foothold, then they can, like Undaria, start to spread to other parts of the bay. That's right, but even Undaria is largely there as a weed. It's not a good competitor because of its annual growth. Right. So if you've got a healthy Aclonia bed, the, yep. the Undaria won't take over. It'll find little spots to, to grow among it. So you keep weeding it like they're doing the great program at the moment and you'll keep it under control. Yeah. Um, but it's even, you know, in other areas of the bay, at one stage it took off at Williamstown, but that was because all the underarea had died. So a lot of this is, again, secondary effect. I mean, the impacts of these things are nowhere near the impacts of climate change with the yeah. sea urchins and the dying off of the um, the golden kelp and other things. So, uh, and, and it reminds us of um, you know what happened when you walk along a path on land. If you've been mowing, roadsides, all of that, where it's been cleared, this is where you get weeds coming in and taking off. Exactly right. Yeah, and the biggest issue with a lot of these introduced things is as biofouling species. So they cause problems on mussel ropes competing with the mussels, Um, oyster cages, anything where you're putting an artificial structure in the water, you can have a problem with these things. And, And most of the problem ones came in 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago. Um, we've been getting these things since the gold rush, and a lot, quite a lot of species actually did come with these wooden ships, come in the gold rush, they just got abandoned down at Williamstown, and, of course, no anti-fouling. That, that, they were just reefs yep. arriving. Um, so. One last question, John Lewis, before you uh, leave us and get along with the rest of your day. Um, what is, is there an organism that deeply concerns you at the moment? An invasive species. Look, it's probably not. That's good <laughs> I, to hear. I, I mean, the, the biggest problem... For I the mean, reasons that you've just outlined. Yeah, the biggest not problem one. in Port Phillip <laughs> Bay not, not is one, the, right. the, the Northern Pacific Sea Star, which most likely came in, in ballast water, not as biofouling. It may have come from Tassie um, with, uh, associated with biofouling. But even that, I, the fact that it hasn't spread, I think that... My theory is that it's taken off in Port Phillip Bay because of the elevated nutrient levels. Right. Um, And that's why there have been incursions right down the coast as far as Wilson's Prom, but they've never taken off. And similar to the crown of thorns, the larvae are very voracious. They need a high amount of food. So I think that 
Port Phillip Bay and the Western Treatment Works are keeping them going and it's probably that relates to the takeoff of the native urchins in the bay as well. But that's the theory of Lewis, so yeah, don't Lewis. quote me. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I went to, like, there was a talk Paul Carnell and others gave um, forum, if you like, uh, about several months ago now on the on the urchins and, and, the, and the problem with urchins in the bay and they're trying to look through the historical data and the, and the most recent... Um, Good survey of that area that had been done was one um, by one, one Lewis, John Lewis and O'Brien. <laughs> from, I think nice circa 1977. Oh, <laughs> the Paleozoic. The Paleozoic. <laughs> uh, John Lewis, uh, thank you very much for joining us in the studio this morning on Radio Marinara to talk invasive species and the, and the Lesepsian migration. We've all got a new word now for. Um, that you, you watch. This will be in the age quiz next week. <laughs> Someone's listening and it's going to be there. Okay, my pleasure. I always, always enjoy coming in. We look, we look forward to having you back um, yeah, next year and, and all the best for the rest of the year. Thank you. Hi, this is Tim Winton. If you want to know what's really going on, subscribe to Triple R. And, um, yeah, thanks, Tim. And listen to Marinara if you want to know about all things wet and salty. Uh, we've got four minutes left. Uh, Cade Mills, I'm sorry. <laughs> Cade Snorkeling Tips, for those who want to get their face under the water perhaps for the first time this summer, like Narita here. Yeah, so what I wanted to start off with is that you don't need to be able to swim and you don't even have to ha- let your feet lift the ground, leave the ground to see amazing stuff, particularly in Port Phillip Bay. Um, a lot of people sort of struggle with that, being in water, that they can't see the bottom or that their feet can't touch the ground. You don't need to worry about that. So the the most the most important thing is being able to see. Like it's pretty important when you're driving your car. It's pretty important when you're doing stuff. If you can see, actually, even people that can't see enjoy snorkeling. So that really doesn't matter. But if you can, a mask is the most important thing. So you can start off with goggles. So like, like, like swimming pool goggles. Yeah, just like swimming pool goggles. Um, put them on. But the idea with the mask is that your nose is enclosed, and when you do start to get a bit more adventurous and go out in deeper water, when you duck dive down, you can equalise your ears and that airspace. If you have goggles, the deeper you go, the more they sort of suck onto your eyes because the pressure is building up inside them. Um, I've never seen anyone's eyeballs pop out as a result of wearing them, but that's, um, that's encouraging. <laughs> no, it, you just feel the pressure, so it's a, a great way of yeah. um, you know basically being able to equalise that airspace. Um, And it can feel weird. A mask can feel really weird. So what I would suggest, go to a dive store. Everyone's face is quite different. So go to a dive store, as Dr. Surf recommended, an independent sort of store, which we only have one that's not in Melbourne, so every dive store is pretty much independent. And get them to check masks out for your face if you've got skinny faces there's certain masks that work fat faces all the rest i've got a big head so i've got need quite a big mask uh one important tip um thomas vesperini in 1970 borrowed my mask and jumped off a pier with the mask on and smashed it on his face don't do that that's a very good tip <laughs> that's a very don't don't be like thomas <laughs> uh, Get the mask fitted, get it working. The other thing you need to do is when the masks are made, there's like a silicon coating on the inside of the mask that needs to be removed. A couple of ways of doing it, get the people at the store to do it for you. It's probably the safest way. Um, you can do it with a lighter. I wouldn't recommend doing that for anyone at home. You can also do it with toothpaste, but it needs to not be a gel. It needs to be that white sort of gritty one. It takes that coating off, which means your mask doesn't fog up when you're underwater, which is very important. Flippers. Don't worry about that. Like okay. We're just talking just getting ahead. Get that mask on. Get comfortable wearing a mask. Wear it in the shower so you get used to that feeling of it being over your nose. The, other, the best time to wear one and get used to it is when you're cutting onions because it prevents you from crying and you sort of go, actually, this thing is quite cool. I, I, I like this. It has a really good use. So it's a really good way to get you started on it. 
Nerida, you're about to ask me something? No, I'm saying let's get on to the snorkel, the actual yes. snorkel. So the snorkel, there's two types. One, they sort of drop away to the side. They're designed for scuba divers in that you can bend them into your mouth when you haven't got your regulator in your mouth. And then there's ones that have a permanent sort of bend in it, which are designed more for free diving, snorkeling. Just find one that works for you. The ones that have a little vent on the side make it easy to clear the mask because you will get water in, so you need to spit it at water out. Again, in the shower, in the bath, have a play with it, get used to it being in your mouth. How much are we talking for a mask and snorkel? Uh, it will depend. Entry you, level? Uh, entry level depends. From a dive store, you might end up spending about $80, $90 for the mask itself. Snorkels are around $20, $30, and they don't need to be that expensive. So it's worth spending a bit of extra cash. They're a lot softer. They're a lot nicer. They fit your face better, and they'll get you out there. We are just talking about spots, Ricketts Point, Jawbone, um, places in the bay. Make sure it's not too windy. Rock pools are a perfect place because you can stand in a rock pool, and you can hold onto the edge and check things out. So that's just tips to get you started. And we've got a whole summer ahead of us, so I think we might go into this a little bit more and sort of in answer detail some questions. Yeah, and once, come through, yes. And, and once, once you get your face under the wall the first, for the first time, it will be like, wow, I want to go back and, and do that's much it. And you more only need that. to be in knee deep water for it to be amazing. Yeah. Kate, thank you very much. Uh, thank John you. Lewis, thank you very much for being on today's show. Um, uh, who else? Do we, oh, we had um, yeah, uh, Helen Privet from the museum. Thank you very much for talking to us about the Titanic. Thank you, Nerida, for panelling. Uh, this is my last show for the year. Uh, next week we will have Bron, Cabin Boy and Neil Blake um, on for the last show for Marinara. And, um, yeah, all the best for the summer. Bye-bye. Triple R, Immaculate Reception. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.